You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. A mission to understand our planetary origins is playing out three billion miles away. Nearly a decade after leaving the Earth, the New Horizons spacecraft is closing in on Pluto and its system of moons. It's truly a journey into uncharted territory. After all, until 1930, no one knew about the existence of this tiny planet. No one. Yes, we had hints that there might be something out there. It was dubbed Planet X, a world that orbited the sun far beyond the last pickets of the known solar system. But no one had actually seen it. A Kansas farm boy named Clyde Tombaugh finally found Planet X, which was soon renamed Pluto. But even with our best telescopes, we have not been able to see any real detail on its surface. And that's about to change. The plan is, on July 14th, New Horizons will beam back images of such high resolution, we'll be able to see features as small as an office building. Hello, no one expects to see office buildings. Pluto, the farthest world ever to be explored by humankind. And by the way, the spacecraft is carrying ashes of the astronomer who discovered Pluto. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to a special episode of Big Picture Science on the eve of the New Horizons flyby of Pluto. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. And some of those researchers are part of the New Horizons mission. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this hour, a hunk of hardware speeding through space at 10 miles a second is poised to give us new perspectives on our solar system. The glitch in its communications over the Independence Day weekend reminds us just how difficult this mission is. The mission to Pluto is the culmination of a half-century's worth of exploration of our solar system, a drumbeat of ever more distant journeys. It began in 1962 when the Mariner 2 spacecraft went to Venus. Mariner 4 flew by rusty, dusty Mars in 1965. In 1973, Pioneer 10 gave us a peek at gas giant Jupiter. The next year, Mariner 10 checked out Mercury. In 1979, Voyager 1, and this may have a familiar ring, flew by Saturn. Voyager 2 snapped photos of Uranus in 1986, and three years later checked out its sister planet, Neptune. Now, last and not least, but certainly farthest, 2015 and we arrive at Pluto and its moons. We are about to complete an historic era of planetary exploration. Now for some temporal perspective. When New Horizons launched in 2006, Pluto was a planet, and Charon, pronounced Charon or Charon, was its only known moon. We've since discovered four other moons, Nix, Hydra, Kerberos, and Styx. And Pluto's status has been challenged. Let's give a quick review. In 2006, the International Astronomical Union, or IAU, came to the conclusion that the ninth planet of the solar system just didn't have planetary characteristics. Pluto lost its planet designation. First of all, Pluto had it coming. But why, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, did Pluto have it coming? Because it had it coming. (laughs) How many times do I have to tell you? That's probably sufficient. Pluto had been a planet for three quarters of a century. Then, over time, our estimates of its size kept getting smaller. I mean, heck, there are moons of Neptune bigger. Our own moon is bigger than Pluto. So Pluto doesn't really fit. So Pluto was no longer our ninth planet, and that settled that for astronomers. 
but not for planetary scientists. I'm Alan Stern, and I'm at the Southwest Research Institute. That's an independent research organization in Colorado. Dr. Stern is the principal investigator of New Horizons, the spacecraft on its way to Pluto. I just don't buy this demotion, you know. Uh, I can recognize a planet when I see one. And so, back and forth, it's gone. The IAU renamed Pluto a dwarf planet. Some called it a Kuiper Belt object. There's been a public protest, angry letters to newspapers, T-shirts that said, Pluto, never forget. And that was just the adults. As Neil deGrasse Tyson learned, the most vociferous critics of the new designation were third graders. Dr. Tyson chronicled their reaction and the public love for the little, lonely, cold solar system body in his book, the Pluto Files. When the book came out, he explained the rationale behind the IAU decision. So Pluto stays a planet until the 1990s when we start discovering these other bodies in the outer solar system, these other icy objects predicted to be there at mid-century by a solar system theorist, Gerard Kuiper, today known as the Kuiper Belt in his honor. And so we look at these other icy bodies and say, hey, wait a minute. They have kind of tipped weird orbits like Pluto. Hey, they're kind of little like Pluto. Hey, they're kind of mostly ice like Pluto. Maybe Pluto's a member of this new class of object recently discovered in the solar system. And so this vote was a way to try to come to terms with the new understanding of what's going on in the outer solar system. Well, suppose the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, had voted to keep Pluto's status as a planet. Would that have been really such a bad thing? I don't have, I don't, you know, people stereotype me as being anti-Pluto. First, I, I like the, the little the little bugger. He, he's fine. I don't have any problems with Pluto. Um, they originally, the IAU, International Astronomical Union, put together a nomenclature committee to find out how to define the word planet, which hasn't been defined since ancient Greece. Uh, most people don't, don't realize that. In ancient Greece, planet is Greek for wanderer, uh, planetes, wanderers. There were seven of them back 2,600 years ago. So... Uh, the seven were Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the Sun, and the Moon. Those are the only objects in the night sky that you could watch move against the background stars. And so that was a category of object in the night sky. Fine. But we know so much more about the solar system now that what are we doing with the word planet? And so the IU said, we got to define it. And that committee was loaded with Pluto lovers. I noticed that up front. So I knew whatever they were going to come up with was going to have Pluto a planet. And you know what their definition was? Are you round? Hmm. Boom, you're a planet. Some of my neighbors are planets. <laughs> okay, round by gravitational means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so that got overthrown because it was just not specific enough. It was kind of incomplete in what it, people felt it should also contain. So two extra criteria were added. One, are you the one who dominates in your own little uh, moon system? So it's the anti-moon clause. Okay, so boom, you put a check in that box too. It's round and it's the biggest out of its moon systems. Third criterion, has it cleared its orbit? Pluto hasn't cleared its orbit. It's swimming with the Kuiper Belt, thousand, countless thousands of Kuiper Belt objects out there. So eh, it loses that criterion, and Pluto is now demoted officially to dwarf planet status. Well, look, for most researchers, whether you call Pluto a planet or an ice dwarf or a round thing out there, I mean, it just, it just doesn't matter very much. Uh, I mean, it really doesn't change the nature of your research. The public seems to feel differently. Yeah, and what happened, I, I, had, I learned this quite by accident. We, in the year 2000, back in New York City, where I work, I'm, I run the Hayden Planetarium there, part of the American Museum of Natural History. In the year 2000, we opened a brand new exhibit on the universe where we had to think deeply about all the new trends in science, because you're about to cut metal, you, you don't want to make, you don't want the exhibit that you designed to be go out of style or out of date a few months later. So we looked at what was going on in the solar system and realized that all these icy bodies were being discovered in the outer solar system. So we said, maybe Pluto's one of those. So all we did was present the solar system not as an enumeration of planets. We presented it as a group, as groupings of objects with like properties. The rocky terrestrials, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, we presented those as a group. The gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, that was a group. The Kuiper Belt, icy bodies in the outer solar system with funky orbits, that was a group. We added Pluto to that group. And there it was until the New York Times made a page one story in response to this exhibit saying, Pluto not a planet? Only in New York. 
And that's when I started getting hate mail from third graders and people started choosing up sides and my inbox flooded and I became public enemy number one to all the Pluto lovers of the world. Can you give me some examples of the sorts of things people were writing you? <laughs> well, in the Pluto files, in, in the book, I, I have, for, for some of the cuter letters, I have literal scans of the letters because you see the crayon scrawl. One of them <laughs> says, Dear Dr. Tyson, put my favorite planet back. Why? Where's, what did you do with Pluto? That's my favorite planet. Here's a picture of it. And they, with crayon, draw a picture of it <laughs> in case I didn't know. And one of them says, write back soon, but not in cursive. I don't know how to read cursive yet. This was the cutest thing. And I realized that this struck a raw nerve. By the way, we didn't actually kick Pluto out of the solar system. We just grouped it differently than people had expected. But it's not how people learned the solar system. It conflicted with this sort of intellectual variant of comfort food, right? You're in elementary school and you learn. There are nine planets. They each have a name. They each have a number. Done. You're done with the solar system. And... All of a sudden, we think about it differently. It deeply upset people's sensibilities of things. By the way, it wasn't just the kids. It was like grown-ups, too, as well as colleagues. Everybody was choosing up sides. And I got letters from colleagues that were just as sort of emotionally dripping as the ones for the kids, but they just spelled better. <laughs> That's the only difference between the, the correspondence that I got uh, between the two. Probably didn't write in crayon either. <laughs> What is it about Pluto, Neil, that makes it so charismatic that these Pluto files make such a ruckus to defend its honor? I, I thought long and hard about this. I, ch I checked with Europeans. They didn't care that Pluto was being considered to be demoted. And I said, it, I realized it, it's an American thing. Then I thought, is it because an American discovered Pluto? So I took a poll. Only 10 or 15 percent of those who were Pluto lovers knew that an American had discovered it. So I had to look even deeper and deeper and deeper. And I realized there was no other choice left, but that Pluto was discovered in 1930, the same year Disney first sketched the dog, the right. dog, the <laughs> dog that got the name Pluto. And so Pluto the dog and Pluto the cosmic object have the same tenure in the hearts and minds of Americans. Think about it. When do you first learn about the planets? In elementary school. And if you're a normal kid, you're watching cartoons. And you haven't learned Roman mythology yet. So when they tell you Mercury is one of the planets, that's just a, a name. You're not thinking, oh, that's the Roman messenger god. That's just a name. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Pluto. And therein is born the genetic link that we as Americans have to this diminutive ice ball in the outer solar system. From pooch to planet, Neil Tyson, thanks so much for coming in and talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist and the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Okay, but what's in a name? Well, it turns out quite a lot. But here's what may be the most intriguing fact about Pluto being reclassified as a dwarf planet. It means this little lonely celestial body isn't so lonely. What we've learned only recently, and what the mission will explore further, says Alan Stern, principal investigator for New Horizons, is that dwarf planets are plentiful in the Kuiper Belt and also the Oort Cloud, that huge cloud of comets that surround it. In other words, the solar system body count is about to soar. Alan, New Horizons is on its way to Pluto, and at this moment, at least, Pluto is still a dwarf planet, right? You know, I coined that term in 1991. And just like the sun is a dwarf star, Pluto is a dwarf planet, and it always will be. You don't think that'll change again? Well, I think most planetary scientists think that the IEU, the International Astronomical Union, really blundered. It's not surprising, since the IEU is made up of astronomers who don't practice planetary science, that they would blunder in attempting to make it a planet definition. But, uh, you know, for most planetary scientists, I think you would find them calling Pluto a planet all the time, because dwarf planets are planets. You said in talks that of all the missions that you've been involved in, and there have been many, New Horizons is the most exciting. And why is that? <laughs> it's true. New Horizons is the best space mission I've ever been involved in because it's a return to raw reconnaissance. We're the fastest spacecraft ever launched, going farther than any mission ever has to the very frontier of our solar system to explore not just a new planet and its satellites, Pluto, but a new kind of planet. This is the first mission to the ice dwarfs of the Kuiper Belt. And what could be more exciting? You know, in the previous generation, the leaders of planetary science in the 60s and 70s and 80s were first to Venus, first to Mars, first to Mercury, first to the giant planets. In this generation, 
it's very rare to be a part of first-time exploration like this. That's what New Horizons is all about. It's really something like a mission plucked out of the 1960s or 70s in terms of its exploration potential, but done with 21st century technology. What could be better than that? So it sounds as though even if Pluto received demotion from planet to dwarf planet, there are still many reasons why we want to go there. Now, well, I have, to, I have to just put in my two cents. I have to tell you, we don't consider it to be a demotion, to be a dwarf planet. It's a description. It's not an insult. It's not an insult that the sun is a dwarf star. That doesn't take anything away from our star. Turns out most of the planets in our solar system are dwarf planets. There are probably hundreds of dwarf planets in the deep outer solar system. It's really the Earth and the other terrestrial planets and the giant planets that are the misfits now. To what degree will we learn something about not just Pluto, the planet, but also the the formation of the Earth of the early solar system. I mean, will visiting Pluto tell us something about the building blocks of the other objects in the solar system? Well, we sure hope so, and that's why the National Academy of Sciences ranked this mission number one for funding. One thing that we know is now that we did not know, even as recently as the 90s, is the solar system very good at making planets, much better than we thought. There are probably more like 900 planets than nine And most of those, almost all of them, are small, like Pluto. And only the rare ones grew to be much larger. We expect the Pluto system to teach us a great deal about the most prevalent class of planet in the solar system, the dwarfs. Well, Ellen, I wonder if you could say more about that, because we grew up memorizing the planets, and there were nine of them, and then there were eight, and a dwarf planet. And now you're saying there are more than 900 planets. Where are they? They're almost certainly in the depths of the scattered part of the Kuiper Belt and in the Oort Cloud. All the comets and all the other things that are there came from the giant planet region. And we know that there were a significant number of planets orbiting in that region early on. And they were ejected, just like Voyager was ejected out of the solar system by Jupiter and the other giant planets. And when you simulate that in a computer, what you find is about 90% of everything gets ejected completely out of the solar system into interstellar space. So it sounds like, I'll I'll speak for myself, that I think of Pluto as an outlier. So you have these four rocky planets, you have these four gas planets, and then you have Pluto. And it raises a question of how did Pluto form? But it sounds like what you're saying is Pluto is actually, it's the other planets that are the outliers. And and Pluto, the dwarf planet Pluto, is, is actually a common solar body formation. Very much so. We're living on an unusually large planet, Earth. At the very end of the 20th century, in the 1990s, the Kuiper Belt was discovered. It changed everything. It's the largest structure in our planetary system. And it's taught us that the types of planets that we thought were rare are actually routine. And the ones that we thought were the norm are actually the real misfits. Alan Stern, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for uh, being interested. Alan Stern is a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute. He's the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission. It sounds as though whatever you call Pluto, icy body or dwarf planet, the kind of solar body that it is may be the most common in the solar system. Yeah, it's remarkable. It's kind of ironic, in fact, that here we have planets, and now we find something that's a little different. We say, well, that's special. But it turns out what's special is ordinary, and what was ordinary is likely to be special. And we'll find out more about it as New Horizons approaches Pluto. Now, what do you make of the fact that Clyde Tombaugh's ashes are on board the spacecraft? Yeah, Clyde Tombaugh, who came to the Lowell Observatory. He was in his early 20s, I don't know, some very young guy. And he finds Planet X, which is Pluto. He had requested that his ashes be sent into space. And gosh, you know, in a sense, this is such a fitting thing that uh, he's the guy who's going to Pluto. You're listening to a special edition of this show in anticipation of this month's flyby of New Horizons past Pluto. So don't blink. It's an ice planet if you can spot it. Remember, we haven't yet flown by Pluto. A how-to on navigating a spacecraft around moons and dangerous debris 
at 36,000 miles an hour next. It's Dogged Pursuit of Pluto on Big Picture Science. So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a history happy hour about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe maybe laughing or just groaning <laughs> at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. Imagine you're in a car moving at 120 miles an hour and you're zooming past your house. Okay, you need a long street for this experiment, but on your front porch sits your daughter. Your mission, take photos of her while you zip by. Now this gives you a rough feeling of the New Horizons encounter with Pluto. No time to dawdle. A tourist stop, this ain't. Hey honey, can we pull over for a quick bathroom break? Nope. The NASA spacecraft will come within 7,700 miles of Pluto's icy crust, deep within the orbits of its five known moons. That's approximately the distance from New York to Mumbai. It will pass the entire plutonium body in the time that you spend brushing your teeth, so that's about three minutes to get as many of the highest resolution pictures as possible while moving at 36,000 miles or 58,000 kilometers an hour. The images promise to be visually dramatic, but more than that, they may give us clues to the history of the outer solar system's icy realms. Now, obviously, there's considerable excitement as we near Pluto. After all, it's been a mystery to us for 85 years, and we're going to see this celestial body clearly for the first time. But it's been a lot of work getting there. Going into space is hard. A communication glitch on New Horizons gave NASA engineers and Pluto fans a start over the July 4th weekend. NASA, with its decades of experience, and really because of its decades of experience, knows not to exhale until a spacecraft has arrived safely. Their job of navigation is not over just because their destination is in sight. All right, I've been cruising the New Jersey Turnpike for two hours now, and oh, there, I see the New York skyline. Looks like my work here is done. Gonna grab me some Z's. NASA engineers are still threading the spacecraft through treacherous territory. Mark Showalter, a SETI Institute senior research scientist and New Horizons team member, says the spacecraft still needs to clear the five plutonian moons, two of which, Kerberos and Styx, he discovered, by the way. Mark, uh, New Horizons mission is approaching Pluto. You're involved with this. What's your role in terms of this Pluto mission? Well, I'm a member of the science team. My particular focus is on the hazard that might be in the way of the spacecraft as it approaches Pluto. Well, hazard, what, what, what kind of hazard? Uh, Klingon warships? What? <laughs> um, well, that would be a new story. Um, we're thinking more in terms of things like dust. Basically, you're flying through the system at about 14 kilometers per second. So anything even the size of a BB could very plausibly destroy a component of the spacecraft. And if the spacecraft does not make it through the Pluto system, we get almost nothing back because almost nothing is sent down until after we complete the flyby. So we're looking for any kind of a dust ring, any kind of a satellite that might be produced dust. We have a whole team of scientists who are doing image processing as we approach, who are searching for rings, who are modeling the dust that would be coming off of the satellites we know about, anything that might produce something that would get in the way of the spacecraft. Now, Pluto has several moons that we know about. In fact, I think two of them were discovered by you. And uh, these moons are not necessarily in very predictable orbits. Is there any chance you could actually collide with one of Pluto's moons? 
That's a very, very unlikely event. Really, we're interested in the things that might be coming off of a moon. Uh, and in fact, we're lucky in the sense that the four moons we know about are all in the same plane as Pluto and its big moon, Charon. And New Horizons is coming through almost as a bullseye, almost perpendicular to, to that plane. And as a result, the dust that comes off of the moons we know about is actually not likely to be a factor in contributing to the risk. What do you expect to see as we get close to Pluto? I mean, if if you had to make an artist impression of what Pluto is going to look like today, what would it be? Well, we have some ideas about that because uh, one of my colleagues on the team, Mark Bowie, has actually done some really extensive processing of data from the Hubble telescope. Even Hubble can only resolve Pluto at the level of maybe two pixels, so you can't really say very much about its landforms of geography, but using some very specialized techniques and a whole lot of computer processing, Mark Bowie has made a map of Pluto. So far, as we approach, and we're just at the early edge of starting to see features on the surface of Pluto, and his map are turning out to be pretty good. But what they tell us, among other things, is that there are some very, very dark regions on Pluto, as dark as charcoal. There are some very bright regions, as bright as a snowfield. It has all kinds of wild variations. It has some orange regions and some other different colors. It's got an atmosphere, of course, we know for other reasons. This is going to be a very living world. It's not going to be a cratered ball. Now, I don't have anything against cratered balls, but this is going to be a much more interesting world to look at. You say it has an atmosphere, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to wonder, well, how could it have an atmosphere? This is a pretty small ball of rock, and uh, how does it even hold on to an atmosphere, and what's in the atmosphere? Yeah, the atmosphere is a mixture of some of the gases we're familiar with. We have a lot of frozen carbon dioxide. We have other kinds of methane frozen on the surface. And in the sunlight, these things sublimate. They go from solid to gaseous form. And there is enough material around. And Pluto, even though it's a very weak gravity, it has enough gravity that it holds on to this stuff. So we actually see in uh, experiments where we see a star passing behind Pluto, those occultation experiments, as they're called, we actually see little bit of structure at the edges of Pluto that are related to this very thin atmosphere. Doesn't sound like the kind of atmosphere anybody would want to breathe. No, no. It is a much, much thinner atmosphere than that, but it's probably enough of an atmosphere to, for example, create weather. Certainly there will be seasonal variations, and we've seen some of that in our data already, where some areas are brighter at a certain time and then get darker or vice versa, and that's basically some kind of transport mechanism that the atmosphere is taking care of. Now, the New Horizons spacecraft is going to pass by Pluto on July 14th, Bastille Day, and, uh, but it's going to pass by. It's, it's not going to land. It's not going to go into orbit around Pluto. Is that just a question of uh, money? Yes. Everything, let's face it, everything eventually becomes a question of money. We would have loved to go into orbit around Pluto and just see what happens for a very, very long period of time. But uh, that is very difficult to do because, as I said, we're moving at 14 kilometers per second. If you want to go into orbit around Pluto, you have to slow down by 14 kilometers per second so that you can go into orbit. So the way you do that is you carry a lot of fuel and a retro rocket that slows you down. That's how Cassini got into orbit around Saturn. But that's a much more expensive, much larger spacecraft. So we're going to have to be satisfied with a quick flyby. Now, one of the things they did to allow for that was they have a telescopic camera that actually will be able to image Pluto from quite a distance away. And that means that as Pluto rotates very slowly, it takes about six and a half days for it to rotate, we'll actually be seeing all the sides of Pluto at a decent resolution because of this particular telescope on the spacecraft. What's the maximum resolution you're going to get? I mean, how, how small a thing could you see on the surface of Pluto? Yeah, we could see something as small as about 70 meters. So essentially, if you think about the pixels that make up a digital image, our best images will be 70 meters per pixel. Now, I did an experiment where I took a, a Google map of San Francisco and degraded it down to 70 meters per pixel resolution just to say, what the, what the heck is this going to look like? And uh, it's pretty striking. You can still see Alcatraz. You can see the bridges. You can see wakes in the bay from some of the large boats. There are some large buildings that you can actually make out at 70 meters per pixel. I'm not saying that any of those things are going to be on Pluto, but the fact is that we're going to see a kind of detail that is very recognizable to us. It's a, on a scale of things that we experience day-to-day, -day, 70 meters per pixel. You know, as a, an American taxpayer, obviously my taxes have partly paid for this. I, I don't imagine it's a lot of money compared to uh, the usual expenditures that the government, of course, is engaged in. Probably less than the amount spent every day in this country on parakeet food. I don't really know. But, uh, you know, I might 
reasonably ask, well, why do I care about Pluto? I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting to see a world for the first time, but, uh, you know, what, what's in it for us? Well, let me first uh, just set you straight quickly. The, the cost of the mission is about $700 million, which is sounds like a lot of money, of course, but it is much, much less than uh, the cost of, for example, the spacecraft that's on Mars or the Cassini mission. This is not one of NASA's largest spacecraft, most expensive spacecraft. Also, wasn't there a uh, prize fight recently in which the pot came to $350 million or something like that? So two prize fights make the entire cost of the New Horizons mission. So... That's a little bit of perspective on on this particular mission. But uh, beyond that, we're seeing a whole new class of objects that we have not seen before. You can think of the solar system as made up of three zones. There's the zone of the terrestrial planets, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, rocky, mostly rocky balls. Uh, Then there's the zone of the giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And then we go into the Kuiper belt, where it is much colder, where there are a whole variety of different kinds of objects, all of them much smaller, Pluto being one of the larger objects in the Kuiper belt, but not even necessarily the largest. It's a domain in which, uh, with a whole different origin story, with a whole different set of physics going on, it's a new zone, a new realm for us to understand and study. What we'll learn, and what we'll learn is how these objects were formed? Uh, I mean, tell me the kinds of questions that are being posed by the scientists who are involved with this mission. Well, I'm particularly focused on the satellites, and satellites and rings all often tell a story of origin, how this system came to be. Pluto has a very, very large moon called Charon that orbits very, very close. It's kind of a double planet as it's been described. And the other time we use the term double planet in the solar system is to describe the Earth. And so we and Pluto, we Earthlings and Pluto, the Pluto people, have something in common that we live on a world that was broken apart very early in its history by a very, very large impact. We believe that something like the size of Mars actually collided into Earth to create the moon. And in a similar vein, probably four some billion years ago, something very large plowed into Pluto, broke off Charon, and the debris field that spread around that, some of the moons formed out of that. This is a probably a typical uh, formation scenario that happens in many places in the universe. So now we, in effect, get our second example of a double planet. Well, finally, Mark, uh, this is going to be an exciting thing, obviously. You've been working toward this for quite some time. Have you looked beyond to uh, think about what your life is going to be After July 14th? (laughs) Well, I'm pretty much tied up through July, and we actually then have to wait another 6 to 9 to 12 months just to get all of the data down from the spacecraft. It's got a small antenna. It's only got 200 watts of power. So you can imagine that the data is coming back at something like uh, the old baud rates of when you used to call up AOL on your telephone line. That's the kind of data rate we get down from Pluto. So we'll have a long time to wait for the data. We'll have a lot of surprises for the next year or two beyond that. But yeah, the operational side of things, I'll breathe a big sigh of relief. On July 14th, late in the day, there will be a signal sent down from the spacecraft. It won't contain any images or data, but it will say, hey, everybody, I'm okay. And since I've been so focused on the safety of the spacecraft and getting it safely through the Pluto system, when we hear that tone on July 14th, you can bet I'll be breathing a big sigh of relief. Mark Showalter, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Mark Showalter is a senior research scientist at the SETI Institute, and he is a member of the science team for New Horizons. Well, as he said, NASA engineers have to stay on top of things until the very end. A temporary glitch in communications between the spacecraft and ground control over the July 4th weekend was certainly proof of that. But even when the New Horizons team hears on July 14th that the spacecraft has safely made its target, there is still the possibility of the unforeseen challenge. Hold on, everyone, quiet. That's it. That's the sound we were waiting for, folks. New Horizons has safely cleared the moons and the debris and has arrived at Pluto. Good job, everyone. Jane, get ready to roll with the flyby photos. Yes, sir. And check the telemetry on the comms. Glad the spacecraft is okay. <clears throat> huh? Sure, I'm okay, but that's not saying this hasn't been an ordeal. Did someone leave the lunchroom intercom on again? I'll check. I'm the fastest spacecraft ever launched. Jane? The audio is coming from the spacecraft itself, sir. What? I travel more than three billion miles and no one asks, how was your trip? 
Or, how did you pass the time during that boring stretch after Jupiter? Or, can I get you a coffee? Do you drink coffee? It's a gesture. It seems that the probe has slipped into self-aware mode. Everyone's all like, Pluto, Pluto, Pluto! Well, Pluto is the target of the mission, so if you could just prepare to send us those flyby images... Jane, help me here. Why not say... Thank you. Uh, thank you, New Horizons. You've traveled for almost a decade without even an audiobook in, in the cold. And the dark. And the dark. You navigated the terrors of the asteroid belt. Which is made up of billions of rocks. Exactly. Well done. The fact that you needed a push from Jupiter to boost your speed, well... It's called gravitational assist. A lot of spacecraft do it. Yes, it is. And yes, they do. It doesn't take anything away from your efforts. Well, thank you. I appreciate hearing that. So will I use the slingshot on the way back? The way back? The return trip. Will I need a gravitational assist for that? This is a flyby mission. You fly by. I thought it was fly by and swing around. No, it's fly by and keep going. Oh. I always forget to read the terms of service. But your mission is more valuable. Yeah? Not only will you be the first to see the icy planet up close, you'll see its alluring five moons. You might even discover other moons. But it's a one-way trip. Yeah, but that's the stuff of exploration. The path of the seeker of the unknown. Look, Daniel Boone, he didn't worry about coming back when he blazed a trail across the Appalachians. Yeah, and they made a TV show about him and wrote a theme song. That's right. You are a pioneer. Uh, that name is Taken, sir. I mean, you're a voyager. Nope. I mean, you are a seeker of new horizons. That's right. I'm a seeker of new horizons. I'm blazing new trails. I'm boldly going where no... Actually, copyright problem there. Oh, okay. Then I'm going to expand the depth of human knowledge and reveal the mysteries of the remote realms of the solar system. <laughs> Turns out the intercom was on in the John Philip Sousa inspiration room. However, you are accurate, New Horizons. You are exploring new worlds. Now, how about you line up those close-up images of Pluto and I send you an image of a cup of coffee. Ooh, can you make it a double macchiato? Next, the astronomer who claims that he killed Pluto explains how New Horizons will reveal the solar system's deep, dark past. This is a special edition of our show in anticipation of the New Horizons flyby of Pluto. Don't give up now. It's the dogged pursuit of Pluto on Big Picture Science. Are you earning and investing in the stock market? In real estate? How about in relationships? Are you earning and investing in your life? I'm Doc G, semi-retired hospice physician and host of the Earn and Invest podcast, where we have the 201 or next-level conversations about money and life. Not only how you make money and grow it, but also how you use your wealth to create a better and more fulfilling existence. Join us every Monday and Thursday wherever you listen to fine podcasts. Whether you call Pluto a dwarf planet or an icy body, well, at least there's no ambiguity as to its neighborhood, Pluto is in the Kuiper Belt, the chilly expanses beyond the orbit of Neptune. So we have the Kuiper Belt, and we have the Asteroid Belt. Oh, this is beginning to sound like a karate tournament. The Kuiper Belt and the Asteroid Belt are very similar in some ways. Both of them are collections of debris that never quite got around to forming a planet. Caltech astronomer Mike Brown is best known publicly as the man who killed Pluto. And that's his phrase, thanks to his team's discovery of Eris and other objects in the Kuiper Belt. And it was partly because of his find 10 years ago that the IAU decided that Pluto didn't quite meet the criteria for being a true planet. You don't understand. I could have had mass. I could have been a contender. I could have been a real planet instead of a small celestial body, which is what I am. Although, as we heard, planetary scientist Alan Stern doesn't agree with that. A dwarf planet is a planet. At any rate, whatever you call it, we're soon going to learn more about this icy mass, but also about the Kuiper Belt. 
The New Horizons flyby will give us our first detailed look at the contents of this crowded bit of celestial real estate, although keep in mind that much of the data will take months to be radioed back to Earth. Okay, Mike Brown, give us a tally. How many objects are in the entire Kuiper belt if you added them all up? A hundred? Thousand? A million? Oh, it's, it's millions and millions, and as you get down to the smaller sizes, it's, uh, it's maybe hundreds of millions of things in the, in the meters to tens of meters size. It's a, it's a huge collection of material out there. And if you piled it all up in, in one place, I mean, would it amount to much in terms of the mass? Not anymore. Um, back when it first formed, there were probably something like 30 times the mass of the Earth out there. But over the course of the last four and a half billion years, much of that stuff has been ground down to dust, blown out of the solar system, and just ejected from the solar system. So now there's less mass than, than the mass of our moon. Okay, so there's a whole lot of stuff, and you say it's going away. I mean, how much longer has the Kuiper Belt got before it's no longer you know, going to be on the charts? Well, luckily, um, the, the sun only has five billion years left, and the Kuiper Belt is still going to be there at the end of that five billion years. Okay. Now, so what are these things? People have heard of asteroids. They've heard of comets. They're not quite sure what the difference is, except that, I don't know, comets have tails, that kind of thing, and asteroids uh, feature in movies a lot. If I took something from the Kuiper Belt, an object from the Kuiper Belt, and I put it next to a big comet, would I be able to tell the difference by just looking at them? I, I, if you took something from the Kuiper Belt and put it next to a big comet, you have just taken a big comet and put it next to a big comet. Kuiper Belt objects are comets. That's one of the places that comets come from. So when they come into the inner solar system, these things that otherwise live in deep freeze, when they come into the inner solar system, they warm up. When they warm up, they start to evaporate and they get these big tails. But when they're out there, comets, Kuiper Belt objects, they're all the same thing. And they, they just look like frozen balls of ice. Mike, you've made a, a pretty spectacular career out of discovering some of the bigger members of the Kuiper Belt. Uh, maybe you could tell me some of their intriguing names and just how big they are. Yeah, there's a collection of really interesting of the largest of the known Kuiper Belt objects. There's Eris, of course. Eris is the one that's about the same size as Pluto. It's it's 28% more massive than Pluto, but it's a, it's a very Pluto-like object, and, and it's three times further away, so it's got, uh, it's frozen. It's, it's uh, atmosphere is all frozen out on the surface, unlike Pluto's. But then there are objects. There's Maki Maki, which is kind of a, a midway between Pluto and Eris. There's Haumea, which is the craziest object that I know of in the solar system. It's it looks like a football that's been been stepped on and spins once every four hours and has debris flying off of it. It's just, just this crazy object. So there, there are many, many of these objects out there, all with interesting properties, all of them telling us just a little bit about the history of the outer solar system. Well, maybe you could expand on that because when you ask people why why are we interested in studying these things obviously for an astronomer okay you always want to know more about whatever it is that you're studying but the usual answer i get is look this is a big cold storage vault way out there in the nether regions of the solar system and we can learn the history of how the planets formed but what does that really mean i mean what history do we not know yeah, that's a really good question. And and so when, when we study these things in the outer parts of the solar system, the, the prime clues we're looking for to understand are things about how all of the planets rearranged, which even that question was not a question we asked 20 years ago. The planets are not in the places they were when they started, they've moved. We know this by looking at how those planets have pushed around objects in the Kuiper Belt. We're looking at what are the materials that the, the planets formed out of. And in the planets, these materials have been compressed, they've been heated up, they've had chemical changes, they're all different from how they started, but way out there in deep freeze, we can look at these pristine chemicals, try to understand what's there. And just as importantly, we're just trying to understand how this very different type of body in the solar system, it's not rocky like planets and asteroids, it's not gassy like giant planets, this icy bunch of objects, how do they behave? How do they, how do they form? How do they interact? What are their surfaces look like? All of these sorts of questions are the ones that we're trying to answer by looking at these objects in the outer solar system. Well, New Horizons, of course, going to fly by Pluto, and presumably that will give us some of the answers. But, you know, there's some speculation, and of course there's a lot of speculation about what they're going to find, but that Pluto could actually be geologically active. I mean, there could be some sort of strange volcanoes, who knows what else. So does that kind of ruin it as a time capsule for ancient 
solar system history? Yeah, in fact, I would I would agree with that. Pluto is actually not a very good time capsule of ancient solar system history. The, the largest objects, Pluto, Eris, also Maki Maki, these objects are big enough that things have happened on their surfaces because of their size. So in many ways, they're not the ones that we look at to understand the history. The nice thing about Pluto, though, is Pluto has a large satellite, Charon, around it, and its Charon is just the right size that it doesn't have a lot of these processes that Pluto might have, and we're going to be able to understand more of the history from looking at Charon itself. And if Charon is too big, we also get, as a bonus, four other satellites around Pluto that really are these small primitive bodies that, that really nothing has happened to over the past four and a half billion years. Will we have uh, photos of Charon that are, you know, pretty pretty detailed? I mean, do we get close enough to Charon as well as to Pluto in order to see things that are, I don't know, small? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the mission was designed to get good images of both of those. So it's flying by perfectly suited to, to see them both. And, and I have to admit, I am actually more excited about seeing the images of Charon because you're going to get to see this geology that's taking place. You're going to get to see these icy flows. I'm more excited about that than I am about Pluto, which is going to be spectacular in itself. Well, now, obviously, this is a flyby, which means that the spacecraft is just going to shoot right by this thing, take a whole bunch of data, send it back to us. But, you know, it's still alive. I mean, could it go on to explore another Kuiper Belt object? That, that's the hope. The hope is that it will be able to go to one other, and, and it's either going to be one or zero, because there are just so few objects out there that uh, there's no chance that it can go to more than one. There are now candidates that might be right along the path. It's, it's going by so quickly that it, it can barely divert its path as it goes by Pluto. So the, if anything is going to be seen, it has to be basically in a straight line that it's already going in. And there's a chance of getting to some of these. This is interesting, because these ones that it will go to, this one that it might go to, is small. It's a, instead of being one of the larger members of the Kuiper Belt, it's a, it's a very small, typical sized member. It would be, if we had it in the inner solar system, we would just think of it as a, a particularly large comet. And these are going to be the interesting ones that have even more of this preserved history of what happened in the outer part of the solar system. So I'm, I'm quite excited about that potential future flyby. And how long will it take to get to that thing? That's an open question depending on exactly which objects it chooses, but it's going to be many years before, uh, before that next flyby would happen. Mike, if you ask kids, you know, what their favorite planet is, I think a lot of them say Pluto. And I kind of wonder, well, actually seeing this world in the briefest period of time, admittedly, but will that change it from some sort of, I don't know, appealing, mysterious presence to a uh, just another known object, something maybe as prosaic as, say, Neptune? Is Pluto about to lose its excitement? You know, I, I haven't thought of it that way, though, but I, it's... Uh it could happen. We all have these pictures in our head of what this mysterious Pluto is, and uh, th those pictures can be much more exciting than than uh, than sometimes when you see the reality, except that I think the reality is going to be so interesting that people are going to be still enamored of Pluto. But I have to tell you, I ask kids these days what their favorite planet is, and zero of them ever say Pluto anymore. In fact, kids are really excited about the fact that Pluto's not a planet because it's something that they know that their parents didn't know. So if you asked people who used to be kids what their favorite planet is, you might get Pluto. Ask kids these days, they're, they're going to tell you Jupiter, they're going to tell you Saturn, they're definitely not going to tell you Pluto. Wow, I'm surprised. Well, finally, Mike, Alan Stern when asked what he expects to see when we make these photos of Pluto, always says that, well, he expects surprises. What's your take? Could it be really that surprising, or is it going to look like things we've already seen elsewhere? Oh, there will be parts of Pluto that we recognize immediately and anticipate being there, and Sharon also. I, I can tell you that I, I'm really interested in seeing these water flows that we know are there. I'm really interested in seeing these dark spots on Pluto that we've seen from the ground that we are pretty sure are degraded methane on the surface. But every time we go to a new body in the solar system, many of the things we thought before are confirmed, but there are always things that we never thought of before. And Pluto is going to be absolutely the same way. So I, I would agree with the statement that the, the, the most exciting things that are going to be found out about Pluto are things, the questions that we never even realized we should have been asking in the first place. Mike Brown, thanks so very much for being with us. That was my pleasure. Mike Brown is an astronomer at the California Institute of Technology. Well, what we've learned in this show is that as the New Horizons flyby of Pluto quickly approaches, 
this faraway body, once thought to be an outlier, may actually turn out to be the best representative of planetary bodies in our solar system. Not the big gas giants, not Jupiter, and not even Earth, but Pluto, because there may be many other planetary bodies like it in the Kuiper Belt and in the Oort Cloud. And, you know, there's also something very satisfying about this mission because, you know, many people won't remember, but back in 1964, there was an aerospace engineer at the Jet Propulsion Lab named Gary Flandro who noticed that the planets were all going to kind of line up in the 1970s, and he planned this grand tour to visit Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. And Pluto lost out. They actually launched the Voyager spacecraft, and they didn't go to Pluto. And now, finally, the grand tour, a half century later, is being completed. And in a way, that's good for us because, in fact, you know, the equipment on board the New Horizons spacecraft is so much better than it would have been in the 1970s. We're going to learn a lot more about Pluto than we would have if we had tried it in the 1970s. Well, what do we look for in the week of the flyby? What should we be expecting to see in the news and the reports? Well, yes, there's going to be growing interest, of course. And every day, the stories presumably will get better, and the photos will be getting better very quickly. And so, in a sense, on the 14th, yeah, we're going to get some photos back. But keep in mind, it'll take at least, you know, months, weeks, whatever, to get the best photos back. But, you know, we're going to see what's coming on the 14th, on the 13th, I suspect. And so the data will keep coming in long after New Horizons flies past Pluto and goes off into the solar system? Yeah, and, and beyond eventually. Yes, it will, because, uh, you know, when it's flying by, they, they tend to keep the antenna facing toward Pluto, you know, just to intercept any dust or little particles that might otherwise do some damage. So it's not aimed back at the Earth where it can send some, you know, data back to us. So it'll turn it around eventually, and, and those data will come back. But, you know, it's far away. It's a fairly weak transmitter. It's not very powerful, so the data rate is pretty low. So you have, you know, sort of a low-speed modem sending all those data back, but, you know, it's all stored on board. So as far as the science goes, it's not going to be, you know, the week after it flies by Pluto. The science will come in over the course of the next year. And, you know, Molly, it is exciting. The most exciting thing is to finally see what Pluto and Charon look like. I mean, that's just gosh darn exciting. Okay, so after many, many years of planning and a decade traveling, New Horizons will finally reach its destination, and we are poised and ready for what it reveals. Absolutely, although we're not there yet. There was a technical glitch over the July 4th weekend, but that's not so unusual for a long-term space mission, and we hope and trust all will go well. Well, thanks to the icy bodies that helped produce this show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to a special episode of Big Picture Science in anticipation of the New Horizons flyby of Pluto. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find episodes in our archive on our website, bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you think podcasts should be reclassified as dwarf radio programs, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station's not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you have a comment, a criticism, a suggestion, throw in some faint praise perhaps, and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Well, that spacecraft is getting pretty close. Maybe I am a contender. When it comes by, I'm going to give them images they can't refuse. <laughs>